Today's sermon is called, I Hate My Tree. The flowers look awesome outside. They're so cool. Do you guys see the pretty blue flowers that we have outside? Thank you, anonymous person who loves to bake flowers for us. (laughs) Yes. Exodus chapter 6, I hate my tree. On your mark, get set, go. Jesus, thanks for loving us, giving your life for us. We, we pray that we would love you with our whole heart. I pray you put that in us. God, we can't uh, force growth upon ourselves, but we ask, Jesus, that you would water us like we water these flowers and you would cause growth and beauty in our lives just like these, these flowers over here in the front are so pretty. And we just thank you, God, for loving us and cherishing us. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, today we're going to finish the first section of the book of Exodus. And the first section is chapters 1 through 6. Good job. Chapters 1 through 6 is the first section of Exodus. And this section is called The Need for a Redeemer. The Need for a Redeemer. The whole book is about the redemption of Israel. It's about redemption. And the first six chapters are our need for a redeemer. Well, I have a tree in my front yard. And I hate this tree. It has been a pain to me in my life. It doesn't grow like it should. It, it's got these weird branches that grow out of the, the trunk. So the trunk looks all deformed, like weird. And I always have to cut those ones off. And then sometimes the branches just die for no reason. Like half the branches will just die. And then sometimes the, the, the leaves just fall off. And in my impatience and in my anger... I think in my heart all the time, I want to cut you down. I will cut you. I hate this tree. But then, just randomly, the leaves will come back. And like, they, they, they look just pretty. Right now, right now, if I took the picture of the tree, took you to my house, it's full of all these crazy, beautiful leaves. And I'm just, I'm surprised. Because I really don't have any faith in this tree. I think it's weird. I think it's a loser. I think in my mind, I let you live today, but I'll most likely, likely kill you in the morning. Right? I am not like God <laughs> with this tree. I, I mean, I am like God to this tree. I could cut him down if I wanted, but I, I'm not, I don't have the attitude that God has. I'm only concerned with how this tree benefits me, how it shades my house, or how it looks and represents my reputation, my glory. That's all I'm concerned about. Whereas God, he actually loves his trees. He actually loves his trees. He's God the green thumb. He actually cares for them, and he doesn't want them to die, and he's not going to let them die. He knows how to produce his own trees, how to, how to grow his trees. Moses, we have been studying his life. And right now, Moses feels like a failure, kind of like my tree. He feels like a failure. He's committed his ways to the Lord, He walked right up into Pharaoh. The last time we studied, we got together. He walked right into Pharaoh's presence and he said, God has told me to tell you, let my people go. He delivered God's 
message of deliverance for the people to Pharaoh. And what happened? Pharaoh laughed at him and mocked him and then mocked God. And then he added more work for the people to do. The people that Moses is supposed to be rescuing now have a harder life than they even had as slaves before. Then the people got mad at Moses themselves. And the people cursed Moses. He is not doing well. He feels like a failure. Like my weird failure of a tree. He feels like a failure. He didn't produce the right fruit, he feels like. He might even have thoughts of giving up. Maybe even that God is done with me. Ready to cut him down and take him out. Have you ever had those thoughts? Have you ever come to the end of your rope and thought, if God's not done with me, I'm sure done with myself. I want to read to you Psalm chapter 103, uh, verses 8 through 14, just the middle part of this psalm. The Lord is mean and cuts down his trees. No, it doesn't say that, actually. You thought it, you were like, wow, I didn't know. No, that's not what it says. It says the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. How many times should God have gotten angry at you? Ha <laughs> ha, lots and lots and lots, me too. Slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us or fight with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so has he removed our transgressions from us. You guys know he doesn't say north to south, right? Because if you go north, eventually you're going south. But with east and west, you can go east for eternity. You can keep going and going. And he says he's cast our sins as far as the east is from the west, meaning it's eternally far away. So far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame and he remembers we are dust. That is God's heart. And so Moses has a couple options as he has walked into Pharaoh and Pharaoh's rejected him. He can keep looking at his apparent failure and, and the situation that he's in. Or he can look to God. And that character that we just described about how God is patient and, and merciful and gracious and, and, and just awesome towards those who fear him, he could look to that God and concentrate on those things. He could come back to God. He could go to God and ask for grace, which is God's help in time of need. One of those options, looking at self and his failures or looking at God doesn't believe that God loves you and is for you. The other does. One of those options looks at failures and circumstances and sees shame and regret 
and the other turns the eyes from the seen things to the unseen things and believes God's love and promises they won't fail. One response is flesh. What can I see? What do I feel? I feel shame. I feel like a failure. I have all the, that's what I see. That's what I feel. My situation is difficult. That's flesh. The other response is spirit. In the flesh, it always ends by either giving up or quitting or trying harder. I'm teaching you guys right now how to identify whether you're walking in flesh or in spirit. Flesh says, this is too hard. I quit. Or I don't feel like pushing on, so I quit. Or it says, I'm going to try harder and harder and harder. And both of those responses are wrong, fleshly responses. The Spirit's response is surrender. Surrender to the will of God and the way of God. Or it's what we call grace. Coming to God in humility, believing His promises in faith with all the heart. See, the flesh can do things with all the heart too. The flesh can give up with all the heart. A lot of times that leads to suicide or to abandoning your family or divorcing your wife or abandoning your children. It, it just, I quit with all my heart. I can't, I can't let my heart feel anything anymore. I have to get out. It runs. Or it starts to try with all its heart. I'm going to try harder and harder, and I'm going I'm to get up, and I'm going to read, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to seek God. I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to make sure I'm doing all this stuff with all the heart. But it's still flesh. It's still flesh. Because that's not God's way. God never said, you try harder, and that's how righteousness comes. No. He says clearly, as clear as he possibly could, you can never be righteous by trying harder. Righteousness never comes by more effort. It only comes by, church, faith. Faith. Righteousness is always by faith, only by faith, ever by faith. It's the very clear teaching of the Bible. So, the flesh can do things with all the heart as well, but the Spirit when we surrender with all the heart into God's way of doing things, His work done by Jesus Christ, His love poured out freely on us, His righteousness given to us, the whole heart is free. It's awesome. Moses, he takes his apparent failure right back to God. So if we were picking up at the end of last week's, or the last time we got together two weeks ago, Moses approaches Pharaoh, it all goes wrong, and Moses decides to go back to God. Will God cast out his child, Moses? What do you think? You don't think so? Does God think this is a failure? Did God know this was going to happen? What will God do when a man chooses to believe his word and trust his promises? I want you to think about that question. What will God do when a man, any man, decides to trust in God's word 
and believe his promises. Second Chronicles 16.9 is a verse that I've read to you a lot of times, and it's one of, a very key verse in the Bible. And it says that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole world like some binoculars looking to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. God is searching. He is looking. Not for someone who can perform exquisitely. Someone who has great gumption, who can really dig down and puts forth some good effort. I'm so glad it doesn't say that. Because that would count me out. Because I can't succeed in my flesh with what I have to offer. He says, no, I'm looking, I'm searching to show myself strong on behalf of anyone whose heart is loyal towards me, towards my ways, towards my covenant, my promises. I'm the one who's strong. You're the one who is weak. This is why Christianity is so beautiful and perfect is because we come as weak and we're free to be weak and God is is our strength. He is our strength. Moses is like my tree. He's weird and weak and not what he's supposed to be all the time. But Moses is going to be strengthened by God and equipped by God. We're going to see that is exactly an image and a picture and and a type for you this morning of how you should act and behave and receive the Spirit for your strengthening as well, just like Moses is today. So that's our introduction. I know it like, seems like that's been a whole sermon, but now let's get into what we're talking about here. Exodus 6, chapter 1, uh, chapter 6, Exodus chapter 6, verse 1, good Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Again, Moses has just come and just, again, came to God and said, what's up, God? He said, now you're going to see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will let them go. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of this land. Now, I want you to notice that Moses did not answer all the questions, or God did not answer all the questions that Moses asked. Moses asked, why isn't isn't Pharaoh listening? And why are the people upset? And why didn't you give us victory right at the beginning? Why are things going bad? God doesn't answer any of those questions. Why? Because they're the wrong questions. Now, how many times have we prayed and not received answers back? Hmm. Maybe we're asking the wrong questions also. God reminds, instead of answering these questions, God reminds Moses of his own will and his own purposes. God calls Moses to trust him and believe him. Why doesn't God answer all my questions? Well, maybe they don't need to be answered. Well, they're my questions. I think they need to be answered. Well, maybe they don't. And and maybe faith can answer them all sufficiently. My God loves me and will take care of it. That actually answers a whole ton of questions. In fact, all of them. All of them. 
every single question. And people will get so mad at you when you say, do you believe that the Lord loves you and will take care of it? Trust it. You don't know what I'm going through. You don't understand the complexities of my situation and the psychological implications and all of my hurt. You don't know. And our response to them is, you don't know who God is and how faithful he is to love you and to supply all that you need to answer what you really need which is his righteousness poured out for you, given to you freely. My God loves me and will take care of it. It's a great response of faith. You may answer that. Any question you have to the Lord, you can respond with that. It is permissible. Maybe you need a little more, and I understand that, and there are more answers in the Bible to complex questions. That's fine. There's a whole wall back there of all kinds of questions and how the Word of God directly deals with these situations. There's almost anything you can think of in your life is back there on that wall right now, free for you to go investigate. But you don't actually have to know all that. You just have to believe God loves me and he will take care of it. I'm sure you may have seen this situation. Husband is driving. That's how husbands drive. Wife freaks out about something having to do with the driving. Has that ever happened to anyone? Okay, all right. So you guys are tracking. Husband gets upset. Why? Why is the husband upset when the wife freaks out about his driving? You're just driving. She freaks out. What was that? It's just the garage door going up, honey. Why does that cause a husband to get upset? Here's the answer. Because husbands desire to be trusted. Now, if you're speeding, husband, you're being an idiot. If you're driving recklessly, you're being an idiot. But, <laughs> pointing no fingers at all, um, Husbands, a root thing about us is that we desire to be trusted. Babe, I got this. I got the skills to pay the bills. I can drive. That's how it works. I'm telling you. A husband wants to be trusted. And God loves us. And he is more faithful than your goober of a husband. And he will meet every one of your needs. And what happens when you receive that truth in your heart? You don't worry anymore. You don't have to fear. You can actually be happy. Just picture yourself like you're driving in a car with God. God's driving and the world is falling apart around you. But God's like, hey, I love you. I'll take care of it. And you're like, what's the road? And he's like, I got this. I really can do this. Trusting the Lord is not optional. When we don't trust in our Lord, we worry, we freak out about all kinds of things. We don't have to worry anymore. We don't have to fear. We can actually just be happy. What an amazing God we have. Jesus came to give us a more 
abundant life. Not a life you have to freak out about. An abundant life. Not to restrict us, but our hearts become free when we submit to God's way of grace. That He is Lord. We are saved. He is Father and we are children. I read a quote this week as I was studying that said, we defeat ourselves when we're worried about all the difficulties of our lives along the way. We defeat ourselves. God is not defeated by any of your problems. And when they make Christianity illegal, which is going to happen, and when they start persecuting us, and when they start killing us on the streets, I want you to remember, God is not defeated. We may die. We may be tortured and persecuted. Guys, God, that is not a loss for God. We have all victory. We win because we're in Christ. We're in his car and he's just fine. All right, moving on. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I was not known to them. Now, here's a difficulty in the Bible, okay? Because Lord, when, it's, when you see it in the Bible and it's all capitalized, see how it's a capital L, a capital O, a capital R, and a capital D? That means that's the name of God being translated as Lord. It doesn't mean Lord. It's Yahweh, or Y-H-V-H in the Hebrew Scripture. Okay? So why do they tra- uh, translate it as Lord? Because they didn't have the vowels to pronounce what Yahweh sounds like, and so they translated it as Lord. Well, here's the problem. Our verse says that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not know God by his name of Yahweh. But in the book of Genesis, as we studied, they did know. God told them, my name is Yahweh. They spoke to him and referred to him as Yahweh. So what is going on here? What is being referenced here? What is God talking about here? Well, all we have to do is look in the next verse to find the connection. And the next verse begins with the covenant. God references the covenant, okay? So what is going on here is that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew God, and they knew his promises, but they didn't see them come true yet. They didn't know him as the covenant-keeping God, and God is further explaining to Moses that you're going to know me, in a deeper, different way than even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew me. They knew that I made promises. You're going to see me keep the promises. You're going to see the promises fulfilled, and that is the full meaning of my name, Yahweh. I am going to keep my promises, and you're going to see it. And we know this because in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, it says, These all died in faith not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them. They embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Promises is what we're talking about. And it's what we call covenants in the Bible. Everyone say, covenants. Yes. God makes promises, and we believe them to partake in the covenant. That's how a covenant works. I make a promise and someone believes it. That's how we engage with these covenants and these promises. Abraham believed the promises and so he was 
brought into that family. God says Moses and the people now in, Egypt, in Israel and in Egypt are going to know him as this promise-keeping, promise-fulfilling God, and that's the difference. So look what God says here. He says, I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, in which they were strangers. Who is going to stand against the promises of God? Is Pharaoh? No. Pharaoh is weak compared to God making these promises. Is Satan going to stand against the promises of God? No. He can't. Is my own doubt or my own fear going to stand against the Almighty God when He says a word? No, it won't. Guys, why do we study these books, the book of Exodus, the book of Genesis? These re record how God redeemed the people of Israel through these promises. And we are not Jewish, so why are we studying this book? We are not slaves, even. Why do we, we're not living in that beautiful land by the sea of Israel. We're not living in Egypt. Why, is this, why does this all matter to us? I'm going to read to you Isaiah 55. You should probably turn there. Isaiah 55, verses 3 through 5. One of the most powerful and amazing verses. And this is going to link together this whole first part of the Bible of Israel and the story of Israel with you. With you. I want you to, guys, to know how personal this is. This is your story. This is for you. This is not a history lesson. This is not some guy giving a lecture. This is your Food. This is your breath. Look what it says in Isaiah 55, verse 3. You know what? Uh, uh, no, no, yeah, we'll start in verse 3. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you. With you. The sure mercies of David. So God is linking an everlasting covenant with David. He already spoke to all people, and we'll see it all connects together. Indeed, I have given him, who is Jesus, as a witness to the people, a leader and a commander for the people. And surely you, you shall call, Jesus, you will call a nation you do not know, and nations who do not know you shall run to you because the Lord your God and the Holy, and the Holy One of Israel has glorified you. What that means is that all the nations of the earth are now included in this everlasting, eternal covenant that God made with Israel. And so this story about Israel and the Exodus is not just those people, it is our people. We are brought in to this covenant. In fact, we experience more of it than they ever experienced. We know God as even more of a promise-keeping God because we have things they never dreamed of, like the Holy Spirit and the new parts of the covenant. So awesome. And we enter into this covenant when we believe in Jesus and we take him as our Lord. We enter in 
to that covenant. We respond to what he said here. You will call these people to you at the beginning of chapter 55. He says, oh, everyone who thirsts and anyone who's hungry, come to me and buy food and drink without price. It's all free. Come to me, as Jesus says. And everyone's invited. This covenant was made to the Jews by God. But Titus in the New Testament tells us in verse, chapter 1, verse 2 of Titus that it was an everlasting covenant and it wasn't sealed until there was blood. And whose blood do you think it was? The blood of Jesus sealed even this covenant, the everlasting covenant. So our salvation and the saving of the Jews in Egypt is all one thing. It's all the same story. It's all the same covenant. And if you believe this, then your salvation is easier to understand and you can see how we partake in it by faith just like they do. We have the same God as them. We have the same sin as them. We have the same promises that they have and we have the same deliverer. It's awesome. This is our story. This is not way back in time. Moses is one of us. I love it. So I want us to read these words like we're reading our own story because it is. It's alive and it's able to save your soul as we believe the words that are written here. Okay, so let's look at God's covenant that he now explains once again to Moses. He's kind of summarizing now. We've entered into the last chapter and God is going to summarize a lot of the things that he said before. But let's go ahead and read it. And if you have a pen, keep it handy because there's seven promises in this covenant. And we're going to see, I'm going to give you when each of the promises are seen here. He said, I also have heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. Number one, I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. Number two, I will rescue you from their bondage. Number three, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with great judgments. Number four, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Number five, then you shall know that I am the Lord who brings you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. Number six, and I will bring you into the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And number seven, I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. So these seven promises are birthed out of that covenant with Abraham. Just the original covenant where God said, I'm going to bless you and you're going to, uh, I'm going to make you a great nation. This comes out of that because he says the word therefore in connection with the covenant he made with Abraham. And you can see each promise by that word, I will, I will. Again, a covenant that God makes is all him doing things and us believing it, receiving it. Now, I'm going to read to you Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, or 33 and 34. And what, what this verse is in the book of Jeremiah is a prophecy of the new covenant. When Jesus would come, he said at the Last Supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. So his blood completes everything that God promised to do. So this old covenant is full of these promises. Jesus' blood completes it, makes it effective, efficient, and opens it up to all nations. So 
Here we have the new covenant, and it says here, but this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. Number one, I will put my law in their minds. Number two, I'd write it on their hearts. Number three, um, excuse me, number four, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and, and brother, saying, number five, know the Lord, but they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. Number six, for I will forgive their iniquities. And number seven, I will remember their sins no more. And if you want to take the time, you could go in and, and study and link how these two covenants are together. We're going to look briefly at it today. So what do we see when we're looking at this covenant? We see that the deliverance of the children of Israel is an image or a picture for us of how we are delivered by Jesus also. So the first one it said, number one, was he will bring us out from the burden of the Egyptians or bring them out from the burden of the Egyptians. You could link this with the new covenant when it says, I will bring, put my law into their minds. See, Egypt is a type of the world. Who is the leader and ruler of the world? Satan, right? He's, he's rebellious and his people rebel. And so the world demands that we keep its laws. We think the way it does, which is rebel. You're born this way. You can't, uh, you, you can't let someone boss you around and give you the laws of God to keep. And every law that we see, we want to break inside our hearts. We just are like, don't tell me what to do. That's the world's way of thinking. It demands that we keep its laws. We're born just like that. It enslaves us. And we must rebel when the Lord's laws are in our mind. We cannot submit to godly authority. But Jesus brings us freedom. He frees us from all that burden of sin. He says in the new covenant, I will put my law in their minds. I'm going to free you from that burden of always having. I must rebel. He's going to free you to now have fellowship with God and say, hey, I agree with you, God. Remember when the, when the people are supposed to leave Egypt, where are they supposed to go? Out into the desert to serve the Lord. That means they have a different purpose for life, a different way of doing things. And if you've ever wondered, am I saved? A great way to check that is to say, does my mind hate rebellion? and love God and God's ways and God's laws. There is a change that happens when someone is born again. There's still that rebellion, but if there's a change where you now have, in addition to the rebellion, a love and a, and a mental capacity to understand God's will and God's laws, you have an encouragement that you truly are born again. You truly are saved. Number two, he says, I will rescue you from their bondage. And we can link this with the, the new covenant where he says, I will write my law on their hearts. Even if we change the way we think, our hearts can still be hard, right? But not with Jesus, because Jesus gives us new hearts. And he replaces our love for rebellion with love for God's righteousness in our heart level. So we have the first part, we have the mind level being taken care of, and we now agree with God. But now the very heart and what we love is changed. And again, another way, am I saved? Do you love God's ways and hate sin? Do you hate sin? Or are you totally cool with it? No, I live in total sin and I'm fine with it. In fact, I don't like people telling me that it's sin. That is an instant disqualifier. You don't have the spirit in your heart if you can live 
comfortably in sin. This is one of the the surest ways we know who's in the family of God and who's outside the family of God. Now, does that mean we treat those people poorly and we say, get out? No, we share the gospel with them and say, listen, you're not saved yet, but you can have a new heart. You simply call upon the Lord in humility. You repent and acknowledge his ways are right, your ways are wrong. Believe in what Jesus has done and he will grant you a new heart. And the next day you will wake up and you will hate sin. Why would I... Why would I do that? Why would I? Whatever sin you want to pick, just pick a sin. Why would I do that? And it doesn't mean we don't fall and succumb to temptation. That's not what we're saying. We're saying that, are you comfortable doing it? Are you happy? No, I'm not going to give that up. That's the difference. Someone who comes to me and says, I'm worried that I've lost my salvation because I messed up and I sinned and I, I, I told the Lord I'm sorry and I'm so, I, I believe that he forgives me, but I'm worried that I'll have consequences. And I, I come up beside that person and I say, you just believe and receive and accept that the Lord has forgiven you and you're good. You don't have to worry about your salvation. Someone else comes and says, ah, I messed up and I liked it and I want to do it again and I'm going to keep doing it, and I don't really care what anyone says about me. I'm going to keep living this sinful lifestyle. Can you tell that person that they're saved? No, you cannot. But they prayed a prayer. I don't care. The evidence that we have is the Holy Spirit, and that is a hatred for sin and a willingness to repent. It says that God grants repentance to those that are his children. Now, does that mean that person can't ever be his children? No. His child? No. But we must share with them the truth. Brother, sister, you're not saved if you are comfortable living in a lifestyle of sin. Number three, he says, I will redeem you. And we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redemption is directly related to blood. To redeem something, to buy something back, you have to pay a price, and the price for our souls was blood. Blood, blood, blood. And so we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. People say, you talk about grace like it's so free and that's so just crazy. People can't just ask God for all this grace and forgiveness and he just gives it. That's just like sloppy, agape, cheap grace. No. It is not cheap. What cost was paid for this grace? Is it true someone can just say, God forgive me and God will forgive them? Yes. What in the world was paid to provide that? The the answer is the greatest cost in all the universe, the blood of the Son of God was paid for that privilege and that right to become a child of God. Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. I'm about to pay the price, Jesus said, for the greatest thing in the world, our grace, what God gives us. It's awesome. Then he says, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. We are God's treasure, God's bride, his favorite. It's awesome. And he will be faithful to be that for us also, to be our treasure, to be our bra- our groom, and to be our favorite. 
He will be our portion and he will be everything that we ever need or desire. That's what he's saying here. Jesus is all, truly all that you need. You guys have heard the thing, you never know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Right? It's true. Then verse number five, he says, then you shall know that I'm the Lord, your God who brings you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. Know is the key word there. And we link that with the new covenant where it says, no man shall every man teach, no more shall every man teach his neighbor, saying everyone uh, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. And so here we see in this covenant promise a personal relationship with God. Not through a flawed priest, not through a sacrificial system, not through traditions, not I was born a Christian because I was born in the South, but I personally know God. And that's a promise here. And then he says, I will bring you into the land. Number six, I will bring you into the land, not just free of sin, but into a new land, a new life of ministry and service where joy and fruitfulness that the world can't know anything about, doesn't know anything about. It's the victorious, joyful Christian life. This is promised by God. Do you have a joyous, victorious Christian life? If you don't, there is a problem. There is a problem. And you should self-assess. You should think, to, to test and say, do I have joy and freedom and victory? If not, all of these covenant promises, none of them said, you try harder and you'll get it. None of them said that. All of them started with, I will. And so if you self-assess, I don't have the joy. Reading the Bible is a burden to me. Instead of a fire and excitement and joy, it's a burden. Then just step back and realize you're self-sourcing. It's flesh right now. And we just repent and we just say, Lord, I'm sorry. Fill me again with your joy. Do unto me all the things you've promised. I believe it. I need it. I want it. I'm not going to leave here until you give it to me. I'm going to wait on you this morning. God will not tarry. He will not wait to answer that prayer. He will come in and give you this covenant. This covenant in Exodus 6 is for you. If you don't have it, get it. Believe it. Receive it. And then the seventh one, the seventh promise, he says, I will give you heritage. Heritage. You see, soon, all our life is going to be swallowed up in this new life, this Christ life, and it will be our only life. You know, when we die, and all this flesh gets rotted away, and all that's left is the Holy Spirit and our spirit united as one with no flesh, just bright and loving and everything that we need. It's going to be our only life soon. It's, that's our heritage. That's our heritage. And it, look, he says again, give, which equals gift. It's not earned. Our heritage, like our ministries, our families, our reputations, are all as sure as the rest of this covenant. It's sure. It's guaranteed because it's given. It's not earned. If, if, our, the, success, if the success of our ministry was, get, was based upon how faithful I am or how well I preach, we are all in big trouble. 
But it's not. It's a gift from God that he promises to give to those who humbly serve him and seek him. It's sure. The people of God will be blessed. They will receive the very kingdom. One of my favorite verses is in Luke 12 when he says, Do not fear, little flock. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Don't worry about anything in this life. So it says, So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel. He taught them now all of this about God. He taught them God's covenant ways. He's teaching them to the children of Israel. But they did not heed Moses. Oh, bummer. Because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. You see, these people are not yet born again. That's the illustration we have. They can't really understand the promises of God. And maybe you come to church and you hear me talking about new covenant and promises and it just is like, what are you talking about, bro? Maybe. Right now, they're just words for you. They're just religion. Because it's not until the blood is applied to these people that this generation experiences the promises in a real way. You see, you can know all the promises of God. You can know all about grace and all about God's covenants and God's promises. But until the blood is applied, until you are broken at the cross and Jesus' blood washes over you in your heart, it doesn't matter. It's a heart. The blood makes it effective. The blood is what makes it real. And that's why the people here don't get it yet. But they will. Our next section, we're going to be talking about the plagues, and then we're going to be talking about the effectiveness of the blood of the Passover lamb, which speaks of who? Jesus. Then it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Go in and tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let the children of Israel go out of his land. And Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, The children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. So here we have Moses still concerned about his speech, his weakness. Moses still has doubt. He, he's growing, but it's not, he's not there yet. And maybe he thought the Lord would fix the problem, like change his mouth. Or, or maybe Moses is unhappy with Aaron, the big deal mouthpiece that he has. But God doesn't answer him. Moses here, he says, I'm of uncircumcised lips, God. And, and God's like, whatever. He doesn't answer him. Because he already did answer him. Instead, God is going to direct Moses to comfort the people instead of focusing on himself. So for the rest of this chapter, we have a summary of the first section of the book, the first six chapters, chapters one through six, which is the need for a redeemer. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a command for the children of the Pharaoh, for Pharaoh the king to bring the children out of the land of Israel. And then it goes in and it lists all the names there. We're going to skip all the way down to the end where it says, Then Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips, and how shall Pharaoh heed me? Again, Moses? Again? Why is this in the word of God? Well, this is really cool. This, if you count up all the times, this is the seventh time that Moses has brought up his weakness and his inability. And so what does that teach us? The number seven is very important in the Bible, right? It's the number of 
completion or fullness. Okay? And so what we have here is a a completion of the, the message for us, the lesson for us, which is that Moses is completely weak. He's completely weak. He is completely broken. But also, it speaks to us of the full, complete supply and sufficiency of God to meet our full, complete weakness. Moses is going to be greatly used by God, but only because he understands his weakness. He understands that he has a need and he's learning to trust God in that weakness. Here's the secret, guys. Everywhere you want to be strong, be weak. Acknowledge that you don't have it. You want to be a great Bible teacher? Then go to the Lord and say, I am a terrible Bible teacher. I cannot do this. My flesh will infect and and ruin everything I will try to do for you if I do it in my flesh. And so, I'm going to believe your promise. I'm going to put my hope and trust in you and I'm going to ask you instead to work through me and through my words. There. Instead of going strength, God, I could do this. I'm going to look at what I'm going to do, God. I'm going to study super hard. I'm going to get everything right. I'm going to do that all just... Instead of that, which would be flesh, I, I have confessed that I can't do it. Now, what if you're actually skilled at something? You still can confess it to the Lord as weakness because your flesh has tainted it. No matter what you're good at, your flesh has tainted it and ruined it, and it is now unworthy before God. See, God isn't worried about how good you do something. He's worried about how worthy you do something. Did you come to him and acknowledge your weakness like Moses? I can't do this, God. God says, stay there. Completely stay there. Some people think Moses is this great hero, and they, they talk, you go to Israel and talk about Moses, and they think he's basically the Messiah. Oh, he led us out of Egypt because he was so strong, and he had these powers and Superman. That's not Moses. What are we reading here? Moses is weak. He's a picture of us. And I want us to think that way as we study the rest of his life. I want you to think about Moses because I've named my tree Moses. I named it my tree Moses because it's weird and it's weak and it's just messed up. But you know what? It's my tree. I own it. I bought it. And now I love it because it has a name. I've named it Moses. Do you guys stand with me? I uh, appreciate you guys staying so long and, and studying the Word of God with me. I know when I get back from a trip, I'm always like super amped up to share with you guys. Uh, so thank you. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, it's embarrassing to be a Christian. You know, we have to confess our need. And, and the world looks at us from the outside and says, you guys are weak. You guys should, should have more gumption, more just self-esteem. But you know the truth about you. That it's corrupt. That our flesh and sin has, has corrupted every part of our life. And to obtain Jesus and His uh, grace... It's embarrassing. You have to confess your sin and weakness to the Lord, and that is not easy. You know, grace is free, but there was a great price paid for it by Jesus, and there's also a great price that we have to pay in humility. You have to turn your back and renounce everything you think is good about yourself. You can't wake up in the morning and be like, I'm fine, I'm good. We have to humble ourselves before the Lord. And, and I, guys, I'm looking for revival in our city. I'm hoping for revival in my own life. I don't want us to just be the, uh, the same church over and over and over. I want us to be broken and filled with something different, like a vessel. That go, we can be empty vessels, but it's embarrassing to be an empty vessel. But God promises to fill empty vessels. So I'm going on and on and on today, but I love you guys so much. I don't want there to be anything left on the table. Okay, so we're going to have the communion is here and just go up in emptiness and confess it all to the Lord. Receive his grace given to you. And uh, Father, we love you. We need you so much. Lord, we pray that you just make everything, Lord, in your word today and Moses' example for us and your covenant I pray you would make it all real in our hearts.